Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's up, everybody? You are listening to another episode of Life in English. I'm your host, Tony Kaizen. And today, I'm going to be talking about sports culture in the United States of America. Because if you know anything about the good old USA, you know that we Americans love, 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 fucking love our sports. Americans love sports, man. Basketball, football, baseball, hockey, tennis, track and field, swimming, and many, many more. Sports are very popular in our culture, and athletes in general are regarded quite highly in our society, you know. So in this episode, I'd like to take a look at the history of organized sports in the U.S. and uh, also how they became such a big part of our culture. But before I do that, I'd like to give a big shout out to my listeners in Turkey, my listeners in Hungary, my listeners in Thailand, and the people listening in Mexico. Thank you so much for your time, attention, and uh, thanks for listening to the show, you know? Oh, and one last thing I want to mention is the website for this podcast. I'm currently in the process of building a new website for the show where you'll be able to listen to every episode, read the transcription of the episode, get access to the videos or articles or music that I mention during these episodes, and also uh, schedule private English lessons if you are interested. Now, I'm telling you this because there are going to be many words or phrases in this episode that might not be so familiar to you. And instead of stopping to explain every single word or phrase during the entire podcast, I've prepared a list of vocabulary words that will be included in the show notes, which will be available on the new website, lifeinenglish.net. All right. So just have a little patience because the new website will be live soon. All right. Now, let's get into the show, man. So to tell you about the history of organized sports in the USA, we have to go all the way back to the colonial era of this country, which was like the late 18th century or the late 1700s. Okay, so in colonial Virginia and Maryland, and just in case you don't know, Virginia and Maryland are states on the east coast of this country. So in the colonial times, sports were a very common pastime for all social levels, from slaves to slave owners. You see what I'm saying? Now, hunting, which is like pursuing 
large animals and killing them for food or for sport. Hunting was a really popular sport um, in England at the time, but it was only you could only participate in this activity if you were a landowner or in other words, a rich person. You see what I'm saying? Uh, But in America, in the United States of America, large animals were abundant. They were everywhere. You see what I'm saying? And um, everyone, including servants and slaves, could hunt and did hunt. So there was really no social distinction for this activity. You see what I'm saying? Now, in the year 1691, a man named Sir Francis Nicholson, the governor of Virginia at the time, he organized competitions for, quote, better sort of Virginians only who are bachelors, unquote. So in other words, he organized competitions for rich white men. All right. And he offered prizes to the winners of these competitions. And uh, horse racing was the main event. It was the most popular event at the time. Now, the typical farmer, right, somebody who owns a farm or works on a farm, they did not and could not own a horse at the time. It was simply too expensive. So horse racing was really an activity reserved for the rich or the higher society. However, many farmers were still spectators of the sport and they gambled on the horse races. You know, and some slaves actually were selected to become horse trainers. You see, so the rich normally participated in the event. Uh, The farmers normally watched the event and gambled on it for money. And at times slaves couldn't participate, but they would train the horses that would uh, be in the races. Now, horse racing was especially important for bringing the high society together. You know, these races were major public events and these events were really designed to demonstrate to the entire world, you know, the, the superior social status of the higher class. You see what I'm saying? So they they spent a lot of time breeding horses, right, which is making horses reproduce to create stronger, faster, better horses. You see, uh, training the horses, you know, boasting and bragging about winning the races, gambling for money. You see what I'm saying? And um, these things were essential to maintaining that high status you know, or that, that, uh, yeah, the high status of the people in the, in the higher societies, the more distinguished society, you see what I'm saying? And when these people would publicly bet large amounts of their money or gamble large amounts of their money on their favorite horse at a race, what this told people around them in society was that things like competitiveness, individualism, and materialism were the core values of the high society. So from the very beginning of organized sports in this country, competitiveness and status have played a part uh, of our culture, played a part in our culture, I should say. Now, let's move forward to the 19th century, which is the 1800s, right? Uh, On slave plantations, and a slave plantation is just, you know, the large plot of land where the slaves worked, where they lived and worked. So on large slave plantations, the popular sports for men at the time were wrestling, boxing, racing, hunting, and fishing. Now, the most popular activities for women at the time were things like dancing and singing. And David Wiggins of George Mason University says that the slave masters typically tolerated the slaves' pastimes as long as they were ready to work when it was time to work. So in other words, the slave masters didn't care that the slaves were, you know, practicing sports, having a good time, as long as 
when it was time to work, they stopped what they were doing and they worked. You see what I'm saying? So even slaves practiced sports back in the 1800s. And um, going back to horse racing, this activity remained the leading sport in the country from, um, let's say, 1780 to about 1860, more or less, especially in the south of the United States. Uh, And this activity involved everyone from the owners to the trainers to the spectators, all social classes and all races participated in some way in this activity. However, many evangelists or, you know, religious Christians were against the idea of gambling on the horse races. And the general population also complained that horse racing was too aristocratic, you know, in other words, it was it was an activity that was really only reserved for the higher society, for the rich, more distinguished people. So not everyone could participate in the same way, right? Because only rich people could purchase or buy uh, expensive racehorses, right? So interestingly enough, the U.S. Civil War, which was from 1861 to 1865, the Civil War devastated the wealth that was needed to support horse racing in the South, you know? So it was kind of like um, the war that that kind of put a stop to this practice. You know, not completely, I would say, but it definitely had a huge effect on how much horse racing was practiced after that. Now, horse racing did make a comeback, right? It became more popular again in the 1870s, you know, maybe five or six years later. However, uh, thanks to the efforts of the social reforms of the evangelists, again, the religious uh, Christians at the time, most racetracks were actually closed by the year 1910, you know. And it was around this time that many people stopped watching horse racing and started watching car racing, you see. And um, horse racing actually made another comeback in the 1920s when the government realized that they could legalize, regulate, and tax the money That was being gambled at the racetracks, you know. Now, by the 1950s, more people attended horse races than any other sport in the country. However, since the 20th century, you know, or the 1900s, horse racing has struggled or it's had some difficulty against competition from other sports and um, activities like gambling at casinos, for example. So hopefully you're still with me. How we doing on time? Ah, nine and a half minutes. We're good. So we've talked about the late 1700s briefly or shortly. We've talked about the 1800s. And now we're going to talk about the 20th century, which is the 1900s. So one thing that became really popular uh, in organized sports in the U.S. in the 20th century was an idea called manliness. Okay, organized sports played a major role in defining the new models of what manliness was, you know, and manliness, just in case you don't know, is kind of like the essence of being a man. You see, so if you're very manly, it means that you possess all the qualities that your typical man is expected to possess aggression, masculinity, um, assertiveness, you know what I mean? Strength and things like that. So organized sports played a major role in, let's say, being setting the standards for what it meant to be manly let's say it that way so sports like boxing you know was a sport like boxing was professionalized at the time and it emphasized the physical and confrontational aspects of masculinity i mean there's very few things more let's say aggressive than fist fighting right 
Now, bare knuckle fighting, or knuckle, or how can I say this, fighting with no gloves on, represented the manly art of the 19th century. It was like the the standard, you know, if you want to be a man, you fight with no gloves on. You see what I'm saying? Now, as I was doing my research, I came across the work of a historian named Stephen Elliott Tripp, and he talked about some of America's first superstar athletes, like a man named Ty Cobb, for example. So now I'm going to read a short text from uh, Stephen Tripp's research. Ty Cobb was the most dominant American baseball star of the early 20th century. He was a player that fans loved to hate. So much so that he became the pioneer sports celebrity. It was the male fans who responded enthusiastically to how Cobb demonstrated in action a new level of modern masculinity. Cobb did that by his performance as a specialist in his art. A man with iron nerve, undaunted, fighting to advance his team and his career by crushing his weaker, less masculine opponents. Cobb demonstrated raw emotion and encouraged his audience to participate in the manly struggle underway in the stadium by shouting their taunts and jeers at the opposing team. So summarizing that little paragraph I just read, you know, some of the first superstars like Ty Cobb, for example, you know, played a big part in defining what it meant to be a masculine athlete, what it meant to be a man in organized sports. You see what I'm saying? They kind of set the standard. And there was people like this that started to create the tradition of, you know, talking shit to the opposing team, talking shit to the opposing fans, yelling out obscenities and stuff like that, really creating that intense, aggressive, confrontational atmosphere. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so let's move on. Uh, Minorities, minorities. In the early 20th century, elite male and female athletes were being coached by men in general. However, Female coaches or women coaches at the collegiate level or the college level developed an alternative to highly competitive masculine models of organized sports in the 1920s. They created what they call play days for women, during which participation, cooperation, and social interaction were much more the focus than victory and defeat or winning and losing. You see what I'm saying? And their motto or their slogan was, play with us, not against us. You see, this mode of sport or this way of organizing sports also represented an effort by female administrators to obtain more control over women's athletic activity with a more feminist perspective. Now, let's talk about uh, a different minority, which is black people. Right. So at the 60 more or less 60 historically black colleges or HBCUs um, like Howard University, for example, in Washington, D.C., or Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. The students and alumni developed a strong interest in athletics during the 1920s and the 1930s. Now, sports were expanding rapidly at state universities, but very few black sports stars were recruited there. But eventually, the black schools started hiring coaches They started recruiting and featuring superstar athletes, and they even created their own leagues, you know. So now we're at the 1930s. Hopefully you're still with me. Let me see how we're on time. Oh, we're doing good, man. 14 minutes and 36 seconds. All right. 
let's talk about the 1930s because this was definitely a, a major turning point in sports culture in the U.S. So in 1933, there was this, let's say, this social reform called the New Deal. And the New Deal was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations enacted by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in the U.S. between 1933 and 1939. It responded to needs for relief, reform, and recovery from the Great Depression. It provided support to farmers, the unemployed, the youth, and the elderly at the time. Now, the programs focused on what historians refer to as the three R's. Number one, relief for the unemployed and the poor. Number two, recovery of the economy back to normal levels. And number three, reform of the financial system to prevent another depression. You see? So around this time, public sports facilities were upgraded and expanded with large amounts of relief money. Tens of thousands of recreation and sports facilities were built in both rural and urban areas. So on the countryside or excuse me, in the countryside and also in uh, major cities, you see. Now, these projects had the main goal of providing jobs for the unemployed, right, because somebody has to build all these facilities. So the government would contract many people to try and give them work and have them uh, build these facilities, you see. But they also played, uh, how can I say, they also satisfied a widespread demand at the time for bodily fitness and the need for recreation in a healthy society. So that's maybe a fancy way of saying the main objective of this new deal was to give Americans jobs again, give them something to do, something constructive to do, but also... Uh, to satisfy the the real need for physical activity, to be fit mentally and healthily, to have physical activity be a part of our society. You see what I'm saying? Now, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a strong supporter of recreation and sports in his programs. So $941 million were spent on building these recreational facilities, including 5,900 athletic fields and playgrounds, 770 swimming pools, 1,700 parks, and 8,300 recreational buildings. That's a lot of fucking athletics, man. And an additional $229 million was spent on sports and recreational staff employees. You see? So I'm not great at math, but let's say 941 million plus 229 million. Can anybody tell me what that is? Nine, 11. Jesus Christ. I can't, man, I can't do simple math. I'm not even going to try. Somebody write down the answer. Send it to me because I don't have a calculator near me and I failed all my math classes. So anyway, this is why you can go into many communities today. In the United States and see public parks, basketball courts, recreational centers. And I've used that word many times in the the last few minutes, recreational. So a recreational activity is just something that you do for fun in your free time. It's almost like a pastime. But normally recreational. Normally recreational activities are physical, like sports activities, but not always. It just means a pastime. You see, so a lot of times in 
many cities in the U.S., you'll go and see like a recreational center and they'll have a basketball court, a swimming pool uh, and many other, let's say, facilities where you can practice sports. You see what I'm saying? All right. Now let's talk about the Olympics. Eight Olympic Games have taken place in the United States. And the United States has won, if, the, if I'm not mistaken, 2,522 medals at the Summer Olympic Games, more than any other country, and 281 medals in the Winter Olympic Games, the second most behind Norway, according to my research. But that could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. Now, let's talk about the 21st century, right? 2000s up until now. The last 20 years, man, 20 years. Baseball has been regarded as the national sport in the U.S. since the late 19th century with the MLB or Major League Baseball being the top league. But American football is now by far the most popular spectator sport in the country. And I've used that word a couple of times as well. Spectator. A spectator is just somebody who watches. So a spectator sport is a sport that is watched by many people, right? There are many spectators in the stadium watching the event, okay? So again, American football is now by far the most popular spectator sport in the country, right? The National Football League, or the NFL, has the highest average attendance of any sports league in the world. In the world. And the Super Bowl is watched by millions of people every single year. Now, basketball and ice hockey are the country's next two leading professional team sports, with the top leagues being uh, the National Basketball Association, or the NBA, and the National Hockey League, or the NHL. Now, these four major sports, baseball, American football, basketball, and ice hockey, when played professionally, they each occupy a different season during the year, but they do kind of overlap. So there's one period of the year when mainly it's just basketball. Then the next period of the year or another period of the year, it's just football and then just baseball and then just hockey. I think I said baseball twice, but you get the idea. You get the idea. And also college football and basketball have huge followings as well. They're extremely popular in this country. In some places, even more popular than professional basketball and football you know now in soccer uh the country i shouldn't say the country the u.s hosted the 1994 fifa world cup and uh the men's national team qualified for seven world cups uh until now and the women's team has won the fifa women's world cup four times now major league soccer or the mls is the highest sports league in the united states for soccer okay now what about boxing and horse racing. These were once the most watched individual sports in the country, right? We talked about back in the 1800s, for example. Very popular. But they have now been replaced or not replaced, but now they're much less popular than other individual sports like golf or car racing. You see what I'm saying? And uh, the most popular league for car racing would definitely be NASCAR, and that is an acronym that stands for National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. Say that three times fast. Um, 
Yeah, anyway, I just wanted to give you a little bit of, let's say, background and information about, you know, the most popular leagues, which sports are the most popular in the country at the moment, and historically, right? So now you should definitely have a better idea of, let's say, the general history of organized sports in this country. Now, when I was doing the research for this episode, I found this interesting, not an article, but uh, it was like a forum, people trying to figure out why sports are so popular in the U.S. and why is it that the U.S. produces so many world-class athletes? And this guy's answer really interested me. So I kind of, I I took what he said and basically reworded it uh, or I put it in my own words. You see what I'm saying? So I'd like to share that with you now. Um, So to answer the question, why are sports so popular and why do we produce so many top-class athletes? Well, You could say that sports are deeply ingrained or they are at the root of American culture, partially due to the longevity of organized sports in the in the United States. We're talking about since the 17 actually, no, since the 1600s, the late 1600s, they were racing horses. You see what I'm saying? So since basically the beginning of the country, since it was colonized, organized sports have been a part of the culture. You see what I mean? Like baseball's National League was founded in 1876. Soccer's American Football Association was founded in 1884. Uh, College American football was played on an organized basis starting around the 1870s and 1880s. And the NCAA, or the National Collegiate Athletic Association, was formed in 1906. Basketball was idealized in 1895, and ice hockey's Stanley Cup dates back to 1893. So I'm giving you all these dates and all these stats and information just so you can get an idea of how long organized sports have been popular in this country. You see? So it should be, it should be easier to understand why Americans love sports so much, why they're so popular um, and prominent in our society today. And according to my research, uh, the sports market in the United States back in 2012, this was eight years ago, was worth $69 billion with a B. You see what I'm saying? $69 billion. Okay. The entire global market, or in other words, the sports market in the entire world, all together, the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, everything in total was $141 billion. And the United States alone was responsible for $69 billion of that 141 You see what I'm saying? It's insane to think about, man. And according to the website Statista.com, the North American sports market was worth $73 billion last year, a $4 billion increase. And this includes ticket sales to the games, media rights for broadcasting, sponsorships, and also merchandise like jerseys and things like that. All of that included $73 billion, man. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So this culture, again, trying to get you to understand even better, this culture of sports is what led to the infrastructure that we have in this country. Like I said, everywhere you go in the U.S., no matter the size of the community, you will probably see a public park, 
or a public basketball court, baseball fields, softball fields, football and soccer fields. In almost every community, you will see something, you know. Of course, depending on the community, it may not be in the best condition. But just so you have an idea, you can go almost anywhere, especially the major cities, and find uh, athletic facilities. You see what I'm saying? And in almost every middle school, there are athletic facilities as well. At least some kind of open track where you can uh, practice, let's say, track and field, or you can play football or soccer or something like that. And when you talk about high schools, almost all high schools, maybe all, I'm not sure. So I'm going to say almost all high schools have athletic facilities. You know, at the least, a big field so that you can play football, soccer, lacrosse, field hockey and stuff like that and baseball um and you know on the higher end or at the most i should say there are separate fields for each sport so let me phrase that in a different way the least that you will see at almost every high school in this country is a football field a basketball court a track a baseball field you see what i'm saying but at the most you will have multiple fields for each sport so one field only for football one field only for soccer, one gym only for basketball, one gym for volleyball. Of course, these are extreme cases, but it's not, it's not, how can I say? You will see it. You will see it in this country, especially in a place like Texas. You see what I'm saying? I used to live in Texas and I used to work at public schools and they look like fucking universities, man. High schools. You walk in, I mean, the campus is so big. So many facilities and buildings and resources, man. It's insane. It's insane, man. And then we, then you can talk about colleges, American universities. Some of these universities have athletic facilities that professional teams would kill to have. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it starts young, bro, from a young age. You just, the infrastructure is there, you know? So if you want to play sports, you can, you know? In the U.S., sports and schools have been integrated for many decades now. And um, Americans football, uh, how can I say that? The professional league in America for football wasn't even really popular until the 1950s. But college football has been extremely popular since the 1890s, about 60 years before that. And college basketball and football um, together are multi-million dollar industries. You see what I'm saying? Millions and millions and millions of dollars are generated off college sports. People buying, like I said, buying tickets and jerseys, um, supporting the team, sponsorships, college tuitions, donations and all these things. It's like really, really, really big business, man. Really big business. You know, according to my research, the 15 largest stadiums in the United States are college football stadiums. Eight of these stadiums have a capacity of over 100,000. What does that mean? That means more than 100,000 people can enter the stadium, have a seat, and watch the game. There's not a single stadium in the continent of Europe that has that same capacity. So what I'm telling you this because I want you to get an idea of how popular college sports are in this country sports in general but definitely college sports i mean the the magnitude of the amount of money of the size of the stadiums man it's mind-boggling when you really stop and think about it 
Now, some people may say that's not necessarily a good thing. We put too much focus on sports and athletic activities and not enough focus on academics, right? You know, for example, in Asian countries, from what I understand, sports are often seen as a distraction from academics, you know, from your studies. Athletes are considered dumb people, you know, like dumb jocks. But here in the U.S., many, I mean, there are many people that believe the same thing in the United States, but there are many people that also believe that there are many benefits to playing sports as a kid and all the way through your academic career. You see what I'm saying? Even for your academics, sports can be good, you know, because it develops cognitive ability, interpersonal skills. You know, sports can be a form of meditation, which helps you focus on your studies even more after having exercised. So, you know, obviously there's many different opinions on the subject, but I think um, it's much more beneficial than than harmful. I'll say it that way. And with this infrastructure, basically, you know, all over the country, I would say almost every young person has access to sports as long as they go to school. Almost every young person. And these students have access to coaching and instruction and the fundamentals of the sports, and they're encouraged to participate in sports. You see what I'm saying? I was encouraged. I played basketball when I was younger. I tried football. I fucking hated it. And now I love soccer. My sister ran track and field. Uh, My dad ran track and field. He played basketball and football. I think my mom was a flag girl or something like that. I can't remember. But like it's it's so common you know i would say 90% of people participate in sports at some point in their life especially their young life you know what i'm saying and um our system has a global impact as well you see what i'm saying because colleges like i said before colleges uh they really rely on college sports to generate lots of money it's big business and if a college cannot attract a top class american athlete Then they go overseas. They try to find people in Europe or in Asia or in Africa, for example, that they can bring to the university and represent the university in these in these athletic competitions. You see what I'm saying? Like, for example, in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Russia, there were 110 former college athletes and 21 current college athletes in 10 different sports. And these athletes were from 13 different countries. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, depending on who you ask, you you could say that it's clear that the system has many problems. Like just one example is why is it that college athletic programs like basketball, football, baseball, etc. Why is it and how is it that they can generate millions on top of millions of dollars every year, but the college athletes don't receive any money? Right. They're generating all this money, but they don't see any piece or percentage of the money that's being generated. So that's just one, you know, one example of maybe a problem or a flaw or a defect in the system. But I think it's it's safe to say it's one of the best systems available in the world right now. And many would say that it's a result of American culture. You see what I'm saying? The importance that we place on organized sports, you know. So, I'm at the end of my notes here, man. Hopefully, how are we doing on time? 34 minutes? All right. So, I'm at the end of my notes, man. Like I said, hopefully you uh, found it insightful. little history lesson for you. I know it's something that a lot of people 
ask themselves, like, why are Americans so crazy about sports? You know, uh, why do they take it so serious? Or, you know, where does the infrastructure come from? And you might think, oh, it's just because America is a rich country, which it is. But I think it uh, it's not all about the money. I think it really it really does have more benefits than just being able to generate millions of dollars. You know what I mean? In terms of personal development, you know what I mean? Character building, interpersonal relationships, respect, discipline. You see what I'm saying? There's so many benefits to playing sports. And I think that's another major reason that sports are so popular in our culture today and why they always have been, you know? But I guess that's it for now, man. Um, in the next episode, I plan on talking about the history and the culture of marijuana in the United States, you know. And just in case you don't know what that is, maybe they call it something different in your country. Marijuana or marijuana or weed or dro or doja or chronic or that green stuff, sticky, grass. Uh, these are all different terms that we use to refer to weed you know it's a very it's a very let's i mean it's been a very polemic subject over the years in this country but it's becoming more and more widely accepted i think and i also think it would be interesting to uh share the history with you you know some different opinions uh where it's legal where it's not legal federal laws state laws all these different things i plan to cover in the next episode all right but that's it for now, man. This has been another episode of Life in English. I'm your host, Tony Kazen, and I'll talk to you later. Peace. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.